You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhesky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, November 10th, 2021. Later in the program, WFHB Assistant News Director Noelle Herhusky-Schneider continues her coverage on the Buffalo Springs Restoration Project. She speaks with Marion Mason and Chris Thornton from the U.S. Forest Service. More coming up in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, the City of Bloomington will no longer contract with SurfPro for cleanup of lead contamination after the Bloomington Fire Department conducted a prescribed burn last week. More in today's headlines. But first, your environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Wednesday, November 10th. I'm Nathaniel Weinsapfel. Last week, the Bloomington Police Department practiced a training exercise at an approved burning site at an old home. This allowed them to prepare for real-life scenarios. However, Bloomington residents have raised concerns about the toxins that came from the home. Local landlord Matt Murphy specifically smelled the burning of lead and noticed ash and other contaminants landing in his and his neighbor's backyards. City officials have contacted biohazard cleanup companies to investigate and possibly remove any harmful chemicals and debris that may still be present in the area. The main contaminant, lead, can have permanent harmful effects on the brain and central nervous system. The Supreme Court of the United States has recently announced that they will hear cases concerning whether the federal government has the power to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. The case, a consolidation of many, goes by the name of West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. Many people on the side of West Virginia are fighting to make it unconstitutional for the EPA to create strong and effective policies to fight climate change, as they view it as hurtful for the fossil fuel industry. Two Supreme Court justices, Justice Neil Gorsuch and Justice Brett Kavanaugh, have shown support for such a position in the past. If ruled in favor of West Virginia, this could become a monumental shift in terms of the power of the federal government. A brand new project between the state of Indiana and an Israeli-based renewable energy company will lead to a $1.5 billion investment for a brand new solar panel farm in Northwest Indiana. Called the Mammoth Solar Project, the solar farm will be around 13,000 acres of previously farmed cropland. This area of the state receives a large amount of solar energy, so it is an ideal spot for the new farm. This conversion will also save an estimated billion gallons of irrigation water and 2,000 tons of carbon emissions that will result from the application of pesticides as well as the planting and harvesting of crops. Once completed, the solar panel will be the biggest in the country. And that is all for your environmental news brief. 
For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinsaffel. At the COVID-19 press conference on November 5th, Mayor John Hamilton shared that OSHA, or the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, published new rules for large employers regarding national safety requirements. Let me just share some basics of that. Uh, They are very significant for large employers, including the city, which is covered, uh, that that make us take some steps in the next 30 and 60 days. Under this safety standard, again, which was published effective today, all city employees by January 4th must either be vaccinated, demonstrate their vaccination status, uh, or get weekly COVID testing and uh, have significant masking protocols uh, consistently at work. Uh, The city, as the city, as one of these employers, we are evaluating our options uh, and planning to achieve those. Um, And I just want to note, these are not optional requirements. These are safety uh, requirements. They're not advisory. They're not optional. Just they are safety requirements designed to protect the safety of everyone, just like OSHA requirements on workplace air quality or safety equipment or machinery standards or others uh, meant to protect the safety of employees and the community at large. Board of Health Director Penny Caudill gave an update on vaccines for 5 to 11 years old and asked residents to be patient as the demand for the vaccine is high. She promised they will be able to get everyone who wants to be fully vaccinated, fully vaccinated before Christmas. Caudill shared that Monroe County was in the yellow advisory category this week and recommended residents maintain their diligence with mask wearing and precautions, especially with the holiday season coming up. So as we come to a time of giving, I would request that we not give each other infections, be they the flu, COVID, or any other respiratory infection. Instead, let's give all of our efforts to giving grace and being kind, get vaccinated, follow regulations and recommendations to reduce transmission. Monroe County Commissioner Julie Thomas reported that there is a Monroe County Township Assistance Fund for residents who need financial assistance. The Board of Commissioners and the County Council have worked together to create the Township Assistance Fund. Uh, This is specifically designed to help folks who are struggling in the community um, uh, with basic necessities, things like rent and utilities. Um, And this is a fund being administered by the Township Trustees. Um, contact your trustee as soon as possible if you are struggling to meet uh, basic needs. And every Monroe County resident, whether they live in the city, a town, or neither, lives in a township. And uh, you can find your township trustee uh, by calling 211 or uh, going to in211.org. That township assistance fund will be available at least through the end of November. IU Health President Brian Shockney shared that the hospital is seeing higher levels of flu patients this year than in previous years and urged everyone to get the flu vaccine alongside their COVID-19 vaccine. IU Health Chief Officer Aaron Carroll asked that parents with questions about their children getting the COVID-19 vaccine should seek out well-informed answers so that they can help protect their families. Lots of research has been done. These are safe 
and effective, incredibly safe. Uh, we'll be doing more monitoring as we move forward. But uh, you know, the harm of COVID is real. Um, and the benefits and potential small, very, very small, if there, harms of vaccination have to be weighed against the very, very real risk of COVID. Thousands of children have been hospitalized, about half of hospitalized children wind up in the ICU. Lots of children still admitted to the hospital with MISC after they have gotten COVID. And of course, there's lots of illness that occurs without going to the hospitalization that can be avoided as well. Not to mention that almost all kids have people they love who are at high risk whether they are elderly grandparents or uh, people that they love who are immunocompromised or who have chronic conditions, uh, getting kids vaccinated to protect those around them is something we do all of the time. Um, and as a pediatrician, it's something I, I push for all of the time. Uh, and so vaccinating your children not only protects them and it actually, I mean, it really does protect them. It also protect those that they love around them. So, um, you know, making the argument, I think it's something that absolutely everybody should do. Uh, it's been highly recommended by every major medical organization that I know. And uh, while I understand that still certain parents are going to have questions and concerns, it's important that they go get them addressed uh, and get good answers to those questions so that they can uh, make the best decision for their children and for the rest of their families. According to IU Director of Media Relations Chuck Carney, the COVID-19 press conference will now be held bi-weekly. The next press conference will be on November 19th. At the Ellettsville Town Council meeting on November 8th, Envision Ellettsville member Dan Rary invited residents to attend the fourth steering committee meeting coming up. This meeting will be Tuesday, November the 16th from 11 to 12.30 at the town hall. Uh, please plan to attend. Anybody, it's an open meeting. We'd love to have everybody's attendance. Um, this is the time of our usual uh, monthly meeting. And you may remember from the visioning plan, we have five uh, stakeholder meetings, and this is number four. Um, at this meeting, uh, the design group will share the, the SWOT analysis of our community, and that, that stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And this is based on feedback they've been receiving um, from the uh, survey and the focus groups and stakeholder surveys. And using this analysis and our feedback, uh, they will be able to um, create an action plan for the community. Town Council Member Denise Line updated the council on the Community Crossing Grant Award. We were we applied for a Community Crossing um, Matching Grant, and we received one thousand. I'm sorry, $197,175.72. Um, briefly, I'll just give the street names that, that will be paid. It's West Mustang Drive, North Sycamore Drive, um, Langley Drive, Renee Drive, Violet Court, North Impatience, West Association, and there will be a culvert repair on Reeves Road. She also shared they are applying for a Next Level Trails grant. The next meeting will be held on November 22nd. On Monday, WFHB News ran a story about a resident who reported lead contamination, ash, and debris after the Bloomington Fire Department conducted a prescribed burn of a home at 1213 South High Street as a training exercise. We reported on the city's response, which included a Google form for remediation and door-to-door warnings to nearby residents. We also reported that the city will contract with ServPro, a company that specializes in biohazard cleanup. 
In a press release on Monday from the mayor's office, the city said that due to delays in contracting with the company, the Bloomington Fire Department will contract with an alternate service provider to conduct the evaluation and cleanup at no cost. By Tuesday, BFD Fire Chief Jason Moore said the city entered an agreement with the Indianapolis-based Environmental Assurance Company, Incorporated for the cleanup effort. EACI will partner with Vet Environmental Engineering, an engineering and consulting firm who will monitor air quality while work continues, according to a report in Indiana Public Media. The city has since organized a webpage titled BFD Controlled Burn Information. In it, the fire department outlines a list of instructions for wet washing, the city's recommended way to clean up lead dust. A full list of wet washing instructions will be available at WFHB.org following this broadcast. WFHB Assistant News Director Noelle Herhusky-Schneider continues her coverage on the Buffalo Springs Restoration Project. She speaks with Marion Mason and Chris Thornton from the U.S. Forest Service. We turn now to that interview. I'm Marion Mason. I'm the Public Affairs Specialist for the Hoosier National Forest. And I'm Chris Thornton. I'm the District Ranger for the Hoosier National Forest. So that means I'm in charge of everything operational on the National Forest, basically like second in command. I report to the forest supervisor for the for the Hoosier. Yeah, I'm glad that you guys reached out to us because I think it is important to get all the background that we can. We did. We had a concerned resident from Orange County reach out to us about the proposed logging in the Hoosier National Forest, specifically the area that is now being called um, the Buffalo Trace area near Orange County. And I was wondering if you could tell us what is happening from your perspective. So, yeah, um, again, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to us as well. We always like to get our word out there as much as we can. So the the Buffalo Springs project, let's just start with the name. Um, Buffalo Springs came about because, like you said, the Buffalo Trace goes goes through that area. So that's the historic path that the buffalo migrated on. And it was also used by early settlers. And then um, there's a lake in there called Spring Valley or Tucker Lake. So Buffalo Springs is just a combination of two landmarks in, in the area. So it was identified in our 2006 management plan as you know, an area that needed restoration work. And so we're finally, we've done several projects like this elsewhere on the forest. We're finally getting to this area and working through what we think needs to be done to meet our forest plan standards and guidelines and the desired future condition that's identified in that plan. So where are we in the process? The thing we're doing right now is called scoping. And so we've reached out to the public, both you know via social media, via emails, via um, letters to adjacent landowners, several methods to get their comments. And we're looking for site-specific comments about the proposal, along with supporting information that, that they believe will help us identify issues. And we'll take those issues, we'll develop alternatives to the proposal that we have right now. And those issues also help us 
to kind of hone in and predict our environmental effects of, of our proposal. So it's a lot of words for uh, what's going on, but basically we're we're in the stage where we're one one of the stages where we reach out to the public and and ask them what they think. And I read in one of the press releases that you're making videos and trying to engage with them that way because of COVID. And I totally respect that. I know I watch a lot of city hall videos right now. And Zoom meetings have actually made like public input incredibly accessible. Yeah, good point. So we did start with a, a newsletter back in January of uh, 2021. We did make a bunch of specialist videos, but they were released in February. And we do have plans that are preliminary right now to to do what you, just exactly what you said, to use the skills we've learned during the pandemic to better reach our public. So we're, we're planning uh, a virtual like town hall type of meeting. Like I say, the details are still being worked on, and I don't have a date for that yet, but it'll be sometime in April. The individual who reached out to me said that they kind of have a deadline of November 15th. Now, this is public land we're managing. And so the the first, the period we're in right now is public scoping, and we have to put a, a date on that to be able to continue our analysis. So we, comments would be most helpful if they were received by the 15th of November, but, you know, if somebody sends us a letter and it's got really good information, and we are not going to ignore that. We are going to use that information. So we, we want to do what's right for the land as well. So even though there's a, a date that comments would be most beneficial by for us because you know when we get new comments later on it causes some backtracking where we'd have to you know relook at stuff so in order to help us out they're they're most beneficial by november 15th but we're certainly not gonna we're not gonna ignore any any comments that come after that so then why why would your town hall be in april then just, just for clarity. Good question. So the next step after we get the comments is I have a team of specialists, um, specialists being like wildlife biologists, archaeologists, forestry, engineering. They run the gamut of people who manage the land, and they will each prepare a report. So it's called a specialist report, and they'll look at the effects of their resource. I mean, just using wildlife as an example, they'll look at the effects on uh, any endangered species we have in the area, any sensitive species we have in the area, and they'll they'll look at what the proposal is and and basically tell me what they think about it. What what are the effects? What's going to happen if we do this? What what things might we have to mitigate to? avoid affecting a certain species. So that all takes time. And we plan to take those specialist reports and draft them into what's called a draft environmental assessment. And so that is projected to be done in April. So that that actually has a lot of the answers in it that people are asking questions about. It'll have the, a big analysis from each, each special specialist and and, and a, lot, a lot of information about just this the whole area. So we'll bring it all together into that draft. And then there's another opportunity for the public to comment uh, on, on that draft environmental assessment. Now, that one is by law 30 days. So there'll be legal notices. It'll go on our social media, press releases. We'll, 
let everybody know, and, and including the people who have commented already and will continue to comment, we'll let them know that it's available as well. So that's a that's a second check-in point. So that's why April. It just takes a while to to write up those documents and prepare the, the draft environmental assessment. So until then, people don't have to worry about any trees being cut, anything. You're just scoping. Correct. Yeah, until... Until there's a final decision on the project, then not, nothing will happen. I mean, this is why we're going through this analysis to authorize those activities. So it can't happen until it's done. I like hearing about how many specialists you guys have. Um, what I thought was interesting from our interview yesterday was the historical archaeological perspective. I really hadn't heard that before. I'd really heard about, oh, like there are bats that are roosting in these trees, specifically the shagbark hickories. I heard that from the Indiana Forest Alliance and the biodiversity mm -hmm. kind of thing and worried about invasive species. But I thought it was interesting about wanting to survey the land first and things like that I hadn't thought about. Yeah, I mean, if you think about how the Hoosier National Forest came to be, it came to be through land that was acquired through the Weeks Act. And all those parcels of land were predominantly abandoned farms and things that, that uh, people left during the Dust Bowl era. So we ended up with those uh, parcels, and all those parcels have history on them. They have old home sites. Uh, cellars you can still see old walls um in the spring it's really neat to any place you see daffodils in the forest it's uh usually means there's a home site around there somewhere someone had planted in their yard back in the you know 1800s so i think the history is really exciting and that's that's just the uh early settler history there's also we mentioned the buffalo trace the native american history in the area so all that we have professional archaeologists on staff who contract out surveys where they dig holes on grids and uh, and find you know what was out there. And if the State Historic Preservation Office considers that a significant feature, then um, you know we'll we'll avoid it with any activities. We don't want to mess up the history either. On the more biodiversity side of things, so I read a lot about. The Forest Service saying like a lot of these trees are dying because they were planted after a lot of drought in the area, but they're not actually native. And I think this is a hot debate. I think it's been going on for a while about getting rid of the non-native trees to let like the oaks grow and all that good stuff. But then in Seattle, I went on a hike and I learned about parent trees, like the trees that fall and the other trees kind of grow out of them, like their nutrients provide life. So I'm just kind of curious about why a lot of the trees that are being proposed to be cut down. Can you explain that? The trees that you're talking about that aren't native to here are, are the, the pine trees, the eastern white pine, the shortleaf pine, the Virginia pine, and the red pine. So when the Hoosier acquired each parcel of land, oftentimes they were old farm fields that were highly eroded. In fact, you can still see the erosion gullies from the agriculture still today um, on them. And, you know, they they didn't know how, how to fix that. What were they going to do? So they did know that pine would grow on those really degraded soils. So they they did what what they needed to do. They planted it, and they you know I don't think at that point they really worried whether it was native to this area or not. They just had a big problem on their hands, and they 
they did the best they could with it. So we've got thousands of acres of pine that is not supposed to be here. When you look at the old historical maps of where vegetation should be, it's not in this area. But, you know, it's here. So we, we've got it. And when when we talk about converting things to, to oak hickory, you know, that, that's one option that we have to, to remove that pine and, and on appropriate sites, you know, go for that. But predominantly, we we want it to go back to native hardwoods. We want a diversity in the area to make it more resilient to climate change, uh, things like that. Um, climate change is big on our mind because as things get hotter and drier around here, it really causes a shift of species from the south to the north. So there's a lot of research out there that shows most oak species will be winners in climate change in this area. And the pine, like eastern white pine, not so much. So that, that's one aspect. The other thing we're thinking about is habitat creation. So because of the history of the area, because all the trees were cut down 80 to 100 years ago, we have a mostly even age forest here. So all our trees are about the same age. Um, that that's great uh, for us. We love to walk through those, you know, bigger bigger tree areas, and then we do not want to get rid of all those. Uh, we want a diversity of age classes, just like species. So, our forest plan says we should have four to twelve percent of the trees in in this area in the zero to nine year age class. And so, one of the reasons we're doing this project is to is to do that. And it's not just not just because that balances the age class, it creates habitat for a whole suite of birds and insects that need that brushy stuff to hide in, to feed in, to raise their young in. And even though we don't like to walk through it, um, they love it. So there's a lot of research out there indicating that that species that need that a type of habitat are in, in a decline. The, the poster child for that is the rough grouse. And so, yeah, rough grouse is a, a game bird that used to be uh, really prevalent in the area. It needs that really brushy, younger forest to exist in. And when our forests have grown up and we've lost that type of habitat, the numbers went down. It's uh, just a story of looking at things a different way. Often we think about birds and wildlife needing big trees, and there's definitely a suite of species that need big trees and, and older growth trees as well. But there's also another set of species that need the younger stuff. So one of the things uh, working with public land is trying to balance all those needs and public opinion about either one of them. And uh, it's a challenge, but I, I enjoy it. Yeah, I think I think especially with climate change, it's definitely important to make sure that we're preparing ourselves and I think that's also what our interviewer yesterday said. Everybody's kind of concerned for the same reasons, and we're just kind of all debating how to get there. There's something that I found a little interesting. So right now, you guys are trying to implement the objectives put in place by the 2006 Land and Resource Management Plan. But I don't know, I just find it a little odd that you were finally getting around to this after 15 years when... I read that this plan is supposed to be revisited and edited and changed every 15 years as, you know, new scientific information comes to light. So isn't the the plan like right now kind of being changed? 
Um, not really. So the plan sets the framework for what can happen on the land. And yeah, it was done in 2006. Um, some of the issues that we still have, um, invasive species, uh, the age class not being, you know, distributed, they'll still exist. And we did start implementing the plan in, in shortly after it was issued. It just, uh, it happened in different parts of the forest just to, just to put things in perspective, the Hoosiers, 204,000 acres, roughly. Um, on an average year, we harvest about 400 acres of trees. So that's uh, about 0.2% of the national forest. So it's, it's not surprising that people haven't, you know, people in one part of the forest when it's, you know, 100 miles to the north and south haven't been to the the part where management has occurred that this is uh, this is new to them. So our plan is 15 years old. It's still valid. There's guidance out there that says you should start to consider revising the plan at, at 15 years. But when you look across the country at all the national forests, our plan is not as old as some of the others. It's middle-aged. So it's right in that you know, area where we should think about it, but there's a lot of other plans ahead of us that are, are going to get revised before ours does. Um, I know there's concern out there that it's old science that developed our plan. And yeah, the science was from 2006 when the plan was written. But before we do any project on the ground utilizing that plan, we're using cutting edge science. We're using stuff that came out last week as a guide on how to manage the land. So one of the things our specialists are tasked with is to to keep up on that science. Um, we have a whole research branch of the Forest Service that we work hand-in-hand hand with on how to manage the land. Um, we also have are affiliated with several universities where we're working with the professors there that are you know, doing the research, even though our plan is from 2006, what we're using to implement the plan is from 2021. Stay tuned for Monday's broadcast to hear the rest of the interview. Up next, Counterfeit Goods on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. Fake brand name merchandise is becoming a huge problem, especially in online sales. And with the holiday season coming up, everybody needs to watch out. With more on the story, we turn to host and producer Richard Fish. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Black Friday is a couple of weeks away, but you may already have started your holiday shopping this year. That's not a bad idea, considering the difficulties and delays in the supply chain just now. But it's those same problems and the COVID-19 pandemic which have opened up great opportunities to fakers and fraudsters and pirates. Counterfeit goods are becoming a huge problem worldwide. Just in the United States, the crooks cost us $600 billion a year, according to the FBI, and well over 300,000 jobs, says the Supply Chain Digest. 
Sometimes it's crooks who import a bunch of generic things and then slap fancy logos and labels on them and sell them to legitimate retailers and direct-to-consumers like you. For instance, seven people were indicted this year for a massive scheme to supply fake UGG boots, Nike Air Jordan sneakers, Timberland boots, and Beats headphones. Three of them are still on the run, but they aren't going to make the hundred thirty million bucks they were planning on. Still, that one case is a drop in the bucket. Of course, the biggest way counterfeiters sell their goods is online. E-commerce was huge before the pandemic, and now it's humongous. Before the Internet, counterfeit goods were sold on street corners, out of the backs of trucks or in the trunks of cars, and you could see them and touch them, so you had a chance to discover red flags like poor packaging, labels that don't look quite right or fall off, and ask the seller just why this expensive product was going so cheap. Online, you can't do any of that. And major sellers like Amazon, eBay, and Walmart are all too often fooled, despite their best efforts, into handling counterfeit merchandise, especially when they're shipped from a third-party seller. And if you're concerned about climate change, counterfeit goods are usually made in unregulated environments, with dirty factories, pollution-creating and dangerous machinery, exploited workers, and even child labor. And when counterfeit goods are confiscated, they're often simply incinerated. So what can you do to protect yourself? Research the provider. That's especially third-party shippers on the major websites. Do they have an actual street address or just a post office box? Are they listed with the Better Business Bureau? Check out the website. Does it have flaws, especially bad grammar and other signs it was put together hastily or by someone overseas? And most of all, be suspicious of fabulous bargains. If a piece of electronic gear or a pair of shoes normally goes for a couple of hundred bucks, and you find a source offering the same thing at a fraction of the cost, watch out. It's up to us, each one of us, to help stem the flow of counterfeit goods. And we'll be helping ourselves. Because when something looks too good to be true, it probably is. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Noel Herhusky Schneider. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at WFHB.org. Stay tuned for Cool Solutions, stories about climate action from the bottom up. Coming up next on WFHB.